one thing about our company is we're kind of running gun and we just don't think too much. Um, we're built. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because when you look at the end result, it doesn't seem like that, but that's a good thing. I mean, we're built to fail. That's why we feel a lot of freedom. And mm-hmm. my, my team doesn't feel this fear of failing. Our company's built around this idea that we're going to be an aggressive product company. We're going to try stuff and it's not all going to work out. You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the future of e-commerce. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Ken Tamita, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me. It's great to have you here. We've been thinking about doing this for a long time. Yeah. Well, let's start by telling people a bit about what you do. You founded Grove Made. Mm-hmm. I would describe it as a company that makes desk accessories, personal accessories, uh, things that people use around their technology in their home. Beautiful materials, a lot of things made out of wood and leather and felt and metals. Um, things that remind me personally a lot of some of my design heroes, the, the Eames. How do you describe Grove Made? Yeah, that's a tough question. I think uh, one of the things I go to first is that we're a design and manufacturing company. Mm-hmm. We're out here to make the best products possible and whatever it takes to get there. And for us, a lot of times it means doing it ourselves. And that drives what we end up doing. So you started Grove Made, what year? 2009? Yeah, 2009. I okay. started it with my friend uh, Joe Mansfield. Mm-hmm. I was a furniture maker at the time. And he, was, uh, he had a laser engraving business. And we randomly became friends because uh, he lived in this beat-up house across the street from a new wood shop I was in. And we would... Um, Talk about all our crazy ideas every day. Um, famously, we'd throw the football around in the street. Instead of doing our real jobs, we'd be just hanging out, talking about creative stuff. And Joe had an idea to make a bamboo iPhone case. Mm-hmm. Didn't really think much about it. We had no business plan, nothing. But we together, we decided to go for it. But you had the equipment to do it. No, we no. Didn't. So that was kind of the crazy part. Interesting. I was a woodworker, so I had like table saws and planers and stuff like that. But making something that precise and small required CNC. And he was trying to get somebody to do it for him, but nobody was crazy enough or stupid enough, basically. But I was naive enough to think, like, hey, we, I could do that. So I bought a $75,000 CNC machine Whoa. off a loan. Um, it's actually really easy to get a loan on a machine like that. It's kind of scary. Um, you could get one right How now. How long did it take to pay off? Five years. Oh, wow. It's like, it's like a car loan. That's cool. But I hired a friend of mine to teach us how to program and use it. And it was about nine months of struggle to figure out our first product. And it was way harder than I expected. Or maybe I didn't expect anything. You know, There wasn't a whole lot of deep thinking going on back then. But I think from the furniture uh, making and probably like the laser engraving, there is something cool about equipment enables certain types of products. Like certain types of equipment allow you to do certain things, and so that that investment. I mean, I I'm assuming you feel like it paid off. Oh yeah, yeah. We had a lot of advice to never buy our own equipment, mm-hmm. and we ignored it all. And it's because um, I had always built my own stuff. Yeah. I couldn't even see how I could really design something and make it as best as I could if I didn't control the tools. Well, yeah, because if you're using somebody else's equipment, you have to know exactly what you're doing. Like, yeah. Whereas <laughs> exactly. having your own equipment, you can just have plenty of time to mess around and try different things. Whereas if you're, if you're borrowing somebody else's equipment, they're like, okay, 
I'm going to give you access to this for like an hour or something. And yeah, that's $7,500 yeah. an hour. It makes yeah. you rigid. You have to be really careful. So that was actually part of our so-called quote-unquote business plan is, hey, these tools are usually in industrial factories. Mm-hmm. What if these two creative guys, independent guys, just had these machines and we did whatever we wanted? What's going to happen? Probably magic. And kind of the backup plan to the iPhone case, if that didn't work out, was, hey, we'll figure something out. We'll do something cool with this thing. So the first product was the bamboo iPhone case? Yes, yes. And uh, tell me more about that. Like, how did that go? (laughs) Well, the first product was the the iPhone 3. And you remember how um, it was round? Yeah. It was like this really weird shape. Oh, yeah. It was very like uh, bubbly on the back. Yeah, it was the plastic case, right? Yeah. So we made an iPhone case that slid on in two parts. Mm. And it was really thin and it had to match that geometry perfectly which was incredibly challenging. It was actually harder than anything we do now. <laughs> so because the, it's 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 like a it's like a poly exactly. uh, it's like a poly ellipse it's it exactly. shape. yeah it's not App, like a straight curve. Apple doesn't use radiuses. It's right. all splines and I made this huge mistake of not paying to have it 3D scanned. It mm-hmm. was very expensive back then and we thought we could kind of just figure it out through adjusting. But it was uh, painfully difficult to figure out how to make something that thin out of wood without breaking and then get it to friction fit onto the phone. So, And we didn't really know what we were doing with the machines. So basically we started out with the hardest thing first. And kind of through a stroke of luck, bad luck, which turned into good luck, our first product completely failed. So it took us about nine months to figure it out. And by the time we figured it out, we, we put it on the website. And that day was when... Um, do you remember that drama when the Apple engineer he got drunk at a bar and oh, yeah. left his iPhone yeah. four there? That was the day. That oh, was okay. the day so, we launched so our product. And, and that was gonna be the new form factor. Exactly. That was the four. So suddenly nobody cared about iPhone three stuff. Uh-huh. Everyone was talking about the iPhone four. And that was a switch to something way easier. <laughs> yeah, it was exactly. like the flat a glass back surface. So that was a rough day. I remember uh-huh. It was, we had put in all that work and nobody wanted our product or cared. Were you able to sell any of them at all? Uh, very few, which was, turned out to be a blessing in disguise because they were impossible to make hmm. and we couldn't make any money on them. So we were depressed for a day, but we snapped out of it. That's what we do and turned that bad luck into an opportunity. Now we know what the iPhone 4 looks like. We started developing for that. And then we were uh, the first to launch a wooden case for the iPhone 4, and we got picked up by Gizmodo, and boom, overnight, we had a, a business. You know, wow. We got thousands of orders all of a sudden with uh, no infrastructure. We had one employee. The product didn't even really exist. We had just mm. made a now, mock-up. Was the was the 4, was that the antenna gate one? Exactly. So that must have helped too, right? Oh, yeah. Because it was like, even Apple got into like, okay, we'll give you a free case because of this uh, whole situation where if you, if you touched your thumb on the side, some people were saying that they weren't getting as much uh, signal coming through. So it, it was like you had to get a case. Exactly. And it was glass. Uh-huh. So on Gizmodo, there was an article of how Oh, it's going to break. It's going to break if you drop it. And the next article is our case. Wow. Yeah. And back you couldn't then, have it better. Exactly. <laughs> but the other thing, though, that maybe it's cooled down a little bit, but at the time, iPhone cases were such a crazy business. I mean, mm-hmm. there there's so many companies involved in this. You know, there are really huge companies that emerged just basically from the case mm-hmm. business, like in case and stuff like that that we're starting to make tens or hundreds of millions of dollars selling cases and 
Chinese manufacturers, like whenever you see the leaks coming out of uh, China that have to do with dimensions and sizes of, of phones, it seems like those are the case makers trying to figure out what the next thing is going to be so that they can get the tooling going. Yeah, it's a crazy... It's super competitive. Exactly. And the uh, market quickly flooded. So yeah. we were fortunate to be early. Uh, we were the first ones to have a, kind of a natural material case that had laser engraved art on it. And for a while that was carrying us, but like you said, it quickly flooded. And uh, fortunately for us, uh, we didn't st- set out to start a bamboo iPhone case company. Right. We were just trying to do cool things. So we knew that we wouldn't be making iPhone cases forever, nor did we want to. Yeah, I mean, today the the product line is pretty broad. You've mm-hmm. got you've got a lot of technology related stuff, you, things that happen around the desk. Um, you know, things for the keyboard, a stand that you can put your computer on, mouse pads, that kind of stuff. And then you've expanded now into, you've got like a knife. Give me like an idea of like the the breadth of all the different types of things that you're making and how do you decide to get into a whole different area? Right, so there was a massive pivot in 2014. In 2014, our company looked totally different. We had iPhone cases, uh, we had 70 artist designs on them, curated mm-hmm. art from really high-level artists around the world. We had an iPad case. We were a case company, essentially. Uh, but our business was really struggling. And uh, we had to make a big decision about who we were going to be. And I thought long and hard about what we like to do, what's our core competency. And we just made a big call to become a product company. And we actually got rid of the artist series. Mm-hmm. So one day... The artist series and custom represented 85% of our sales. And one day, it was all gone. And so, wait a, wait a sec. When, when you said you were struggling at the time, was it because of some of the things that we were talking about? Because the market mm-hmm. got flooded with yes. all these different companies making cases as well? Yeah. And then what made us unique in the beginning was the artwork. Mm-hmm. But people were doing something similar, concept. And then I thought about what what's actually unique about us. It wasn't the art on it. It was actually the uh, design engineering of the actual product, which is much more difficult. So we put all of our energy into growing that part, like leveraging that part of the business rather than the art. So suddenly we got rid of the artist series and then we just had plain iPhone case in, in maple and walnut. And then we put all our resources into expanding our brand into all these other products that we carry. And, we had a pretty hard push in the last three years to expand. It's been kind of an exhilarating ride. We were um, kind of throwing things against the wall, and seeing what would stick. And fortunately, a few things have worked. Others have not. But now we have kind of the, the workplace genre is really strong for us. And everyday carry, which is the things in my pocket right now, are all Grove made gear. And I think slowly we'll start doing other things as well. Uh, rather than being genre-specific, I think of us as, hey, we're a product company. We can do anything. Yeah. We can do everything. But what do we choose to do next depends on how we're evolving with our techniques. Yeah, it seems to me it's almost more to do with like materials and uh, a look and feel than a specific market that you're trying to go after. Exactly, and we're not really a lifestyle company either. Yeah. If we were a lifestyle company, as soon as we started getting the traffic, we would have expanded by just having more or collaborating or bringing other brands in and yeah. building products that are maybe not as unique around this customer that fits this certain profile. But 
that's not us. We're we start from product first, so it's a little slower. Yeah, but um, we slowly chip away at kind of pushing the boundaries on materials, design, manufacturing. So I brought a couple products wow. for you because it's hard this to explain is, unless you. Well, it, it, this it is first. also an audio medium, so we'll make sure to put a lot of photos <laughs> in the in the show notes. I'm going to narrate. Ken is shuffling through his bag, which is also a very cool bag. It's like a denim bag. All right, so here's the first product. It's uh, very basic. It's just a pen pot. Yeah. So it's hardwood. Is this what is this maple? Yep, it's maple. And any woodworker can make a pen pot, but it's the details. So we have a piece of aluminum in there that's sanded completely flush. It's got a nice chamfer on the inside. We brush the inside of the uh, aluminum to get a nice finish on it. And then if you flip it over... Yeah, you've got the cork. So is it one piece of cork that's going all the way through? No, no, it's not. Oh, there's, there's a, two pieces of cork. There's yep. one on the inside as that's well. That's to pad kind of your pens yeah. when you drop them in there. But if you look at the bottom, it says made the hard way. Made the, yeah. Exactly. Is that's, that your slogan? It's kind of our slogan behind the scenes. Uh, internal, we, we show it a little bit externally, but... Um, when I'm making these myself, and you put that sticker on at the end after all the hard work that goes into mm-hmm. making that object, sanding it perfectly, putting a hand-rubbed oil finish on it, I feel a sense of pride from getting to put that sticker on. So made the, the made the hard way, it doesn't mean we make things the hardest way just because. Yeah, It means we're willing to do it the hard way yeah. if it makes the product better. There's something, this is such a simple product, but there's something very satisfying about the... Um, the textures and temperatures of the material because the outside is this soft maple. The bottom has the cork, which is also soft, but in a different way, it's a little bit more flexible. But then the inside is this cool, hard aluminum and uh, it's all very flush and smooth and all the, the, the transitions are really well thought out. So a couple details that make that thing harder. Um, I made that by hand in the beginning. I was just sculpting on a sander to mm-hmm. kind of try to get the form I liked. And I was inspired by a friend of mine teaching me about the difference between radiuses and splines. Yeah. Which we did a No, I mean, I'm, I, I love, this is like some people would call this like a squircle or a super ellipse. Um, so it's not, it's, not, it's not a square with rounded corners. No. It's not a... Uh, it's not an oval, it's a shape that is somewhere in between. So my first prototypes were square, Yeah. and I just took a router with yeah. a sure. cove bit on it and put radius corners on it. Pretty easy to do. Um, to go from that to this shape... That's a completely different, completely different process, yeah. It makes everything harder, Yeah. because how do you hold that thing? Yeah. <laughs> um, on our lamp, which is the same shape, how do you figure out where the center is? Right. Everything is harder. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's it's difficult. I think most people will will not appreciate that exactly. Um, but it makes this object uh, unique because most people might not notice to that level. But the objects we interact with every day, they're influenced a lot by manufacturability. Yeah, that it's easier to make because the motivations are more on the margin side. So it makes our products unique because those are secondary motivations. Right. So we came up with stuff like this that you don't usually see. So is this milled? Is this uh, CNC? What do, what, how do you do this? Uh, it's a combination of handwork, a CNC. Um, that center hole has to be machined. And we actually have to make tiny adjustments every day because mm-hmm. the, the wood reacts differently. And when we pound the aluminum in there, 
and the aluminum is slightly different each time. To get an exact fit, the operator has to be tick, 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 making little adjustments. Now, we didn't allude to this exactly, but how much of, of your stuff are you making in-house? Well, it used to be 100%. Yeah. Um, but we've gotten smarter about outsourcing a few things that we aren't good at. So our philosophy now is if we add value to it, if we can make it better because of our unique skills, we have to do it. If we don't, we should have somebody else do it that does it better. Mm-hmm. So the things we outsource are uh, a lot of the metal machining. Our machines can machine metal, and we make a few parts, but we're not particularly good at it. Yeah. And there's other people that are much better, so we outsource that. Uh, the glue lamination, um, I made the prototypes myself, but at scale, we can't do it better than a mass production factory, so we outsource it to somebody uh, in the U.S., um, and uh, metal bending, mm-hmm. laser cutting and metal bending, outsource that. A lot of things we've learned is even with this outsourcing, sometimes the kind of final details, we struggle working with the vendors like, no, 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 we want this part to deburred like this, or this edge needs to be clean. And if we have four or five of those conversations, we actually just give up <laughs> and say, hey, give us a dollar off. And we'll do that last part. Mm-hmm. And we've kind of learned to figure out how to work with other vendors where we're using their strengths, but then we're doing a lot of the finished quality. With the stuff that you do do in-house, that's all out of your shop in Portland. Yes, yeah. So we have a 5,000 square foot workshop. About half of it is manufacturing. We have two CNC's, two lasers, and we do a lot of uh, woodworking and uh, leather work there. And all how the did, final assembly. How does that... And yeah, I want to look at some of these other things as well. But uh, like, how does that influence the price points? Because that seems like you know, common wisdom would say like, how do you compete with with China on something like that? Yeah, exactly. So we actually only average about fifty percent gross margin. So um, it's definitely very expensive to make things in the U.S. But we're able to have our prices at a level I hope is uh, attainable for people. It's it's not going to be cheap. It's never going to be cheap. But I want our brand to be uh, a decision. For people right. like you and I that can decide, like, oh, this is worth getting. And we're able to do that because we're direct to consumer only. Yeah. Since we don't wholesale, we don't have to have the, the keystone pricing. So just that fact that helps. alone helps a lot, right? It's fifty percent. Well, if you were if you were selling some of these things, whether you know it's the electronic uh, kind of workplace accessories at the Apple store, automatically your prices would have to be essentially double. Or, or 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 worse, yeah, or more. I mean, they take a gigantic cut, yeah. And um, they've wanted our stuff in their store. Uh, we don't hear from them much anymore, but we used to. I got a lot of flack for not doing that, going into the Apple Store. Flack from who? From you know other business people or friends. And uh, I've never had any FOMO about that, really, because it's a totally different business. Yeah, it's about scale, high quantity, low margin, not having a connection to your end user. We're not really interested in that world. I think business is beautiful because companies can decide who they want to be. Employees should decide who they want to be. And the customers should can decide what's valuable to them. And we can be whoever we want as long as we find enough people that overlap with us. So we never really got tempted by the kind of let's be in Target or let's be in the Apple Store thing. Well, I mean, it is really cool that if I buy something on your website... I know that it was made in your shop. That someone, you know, held this in their hands, and it's coming to me directly. It feels more like an artisan type of or a craftsman type of process. 
you know, when you think about pricing, you still have to somewhat consider like what is the market willing to bear? Exactly. Like, so, so, I, I, how do you benchmark that? Like, what is the what is the range of pricing that people can expect if they go if they have never heard of Grove Made? Like, what it what does it look like? I mean, that's kind of the toughest part. One of the toughest parts of my job is trying to figure out what we should charge. A mistake I made earlier was basing it off of the cost. Yeah, and rather than that. We base it off the value it provides to the customer. So we'll look at kind of what's out there in a similar genre and where we want to position ourselves in the market. And then we just make sure that our costs can sustain that. What's really hard is on products that don't really exist out there that we right. do, like our desk shelf system. We have no comparison. Um, on that system, we base that one off of our cost. And I went as low as possible, actually, based off of our margins. There's a strange kind of paradox within our brand because we were high end design, but our people and me were not really like fancy designer type people. Sure. And even though it's not a huge focus of our brand, we don't want to be kind of the snobby design brand. We want to be somewhat accessible. So that takes tremendous effort on the manufacturing side to get things really efficient to make. And yeah. it can be done, it just takes work to get there. How many different SKUs are you actively producing? Oh gosh, I'm not sure. Probably 150 or so. That's not too bad. Yeah, because you you also do quite a lot of your products come in different materials. Like you'll have various types of wood, or some of the products come in like metal or wood. Mm-hmm. But it's it's gotten pretty complicated. Back yeah. in the day, we only made one product, and we could really focus on that manufacturing. But we have so many products now, and our team is usually 15 to 20 people. About half is in manufacturing. So it takes a lot of skill and training so we can actually make those products. It took a lot of effort on the operations side. This is kind of boring operations stuff. This is what I want to hear. But I love this stuff. So um, our operations manager, Jim Hassert, him and my little brother, who's our uh, programmer, they designed a custom ERP system that tracks inventory, purchasing, Actually, without the system that they built that tracks everything going on in the back end, we wouldn't have been able to expand a product lineup like this. The complexity would have just killed us. Yeah, we we built our own custom ERP for Lumi, and that's been one of the hardest, most ambitious projects we've ever tackled. And yet, like, it's not something we talk about with anyone. We're not <laughs> just like, hey, we have a cool ERP. Um, and, and ERP means enterprise resource planning. It's like a whole, whole uh, category of software that helps you kind of manage your production. And it, it's just not a sexy thing to talk about, but it's tremendously important. Uh, yeah, I think it's essential. So um, we, we are a product company and we focus a lot on our products, but Behind the scenes, we're actually focusing on the business more, mm-hmm. building the business to be better, improving every single facet of it. Because without that, you can't get the product. You know, so we kind of try to think like upstream a little bit, I guess. One thing that um, on the on the episode that we recorded with the founders of Primary, they make um, baby clothes. They talked about the fact that part of their brand is it's a rainbow palette of colors. Uh-huh. Every different product that they offer comes in seven to fifteen colors or something like that. But the way that they tried to manage that complexity is by essentially selecting you know one fabric per color and reusing that fabric across lots of different SKUs. Mm-hmm. It seems like you do something similar with the materials that you've chosen and yeah. the finishes. There's 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 a certain subset of you've got the walnut, the maple, and, the, exactly. and these things are reused across everything. And we try to consolidate parts. Mm-hmm. Some of the same parts can be used on different products. 
And we're pretty careful about not adding variations just to add them. You know, if you look at our lineup, we only have two colors of wood. You wouldn't believe how many times I've been asked or told, you guys should do this wood and this wood. We don't have any color. We try to keep it where the variations are actually making a difference. Right. Is it just cannibalizing ourselves? If, because if we have 10 colors, would they have just bought it anyways? Or is it giving them the paradox of choice headaches? Or are we adding value where, hey, the dark wood and the light wood, it makes my space completely different. So, and I want to make this decision. So it's pretty hard, but we try to keep those variants down. Yeah. Um, and make variations in something that matters. Like a new product, a completely new product in a totally different category is worth it to me. Yeah. Yeah. So show me this this thing you've got here. What, so this is your new, is this the Qi charger? Yeah, this is the new wireless charging pad. Um, this is one of my favorite products. I think it really represents what our brand is about. Uh, we launched this maybe two months ago with uh, a simple idea. Apple announced their iPhone 8 and X with uh, wireless charging. So we quickly got work to work designing this thing. Uh, within a week, uh, the lead designer had created a visual design. Um, I believe I prototyped this one, actually. We do this thing we call f- uh, phototype. I invented this word. It's a combination of photo and prototype because it just has to be good enough for photos. So I made a phototype, and we photographed it, and we put it on our site and just launched the thing. Wow. And uh, with a four- to six-week lead time. That's so th- very aggressive. And we had done no engineering, the thing didn't work That's at all. That's crazy. Exactly. And to me, that represents our brand. We're able to do that because of our in-house capabilities in engineering and manufacturing and our culture, which can adapt to any challenge that's thrown at us. What can happen with that strategy is pretty risky. Uh, if you sell a lot of them, then it's kind of like those Kickstarters where people don't deliver for months or years, right? So we have to... Um, be able to deliver on that promise even if we sell a lot. And on on this one, there was nothing like it on the market, so we did really well, and we had to figure out how it was going to work, how to engineer it, and how to uh, scale the manufacturing to where we're making a lot every day. Um, And this one was extreme to where uh, I'm usually not involved in production, but on this one, I took over uh, the implementation of the product and I created an assembly line. I brought in my girlfriend, my brother's girlfriend, and on one day, even my mom and myself. I was in the production line every day for the last month to make these at a high level of quality and out the door. So, so this, just to give a little bit of a description, this is a, um, well, this is one of the charging pads. So, if people have seen the wireless charging pads out there, um, they're familiar with the concept, which is on one end, you've got the, a USB cord wraps around the base of it on the bottom, but it's it's essentially like a flat, like a large coaster with a cork top, and then a pretty heavy duty stainless steel base, which is kind of substantial. I don't know, is this thing mm-hmm. a, a pound more than a pound? It's pretty heavy. Yeah, everything else out there is yeah. like a plastic yeah. hockey puck. And our lead designer, Sean, he made this kind of critical decision to make it bigger. Right. Which I actually disagreed with at the time uh, because it caused some user interface problems where you have to kind of center your device. The reason the other ones are small is if it's not centered, it would just fall off, right? Right. 
But his idea was, hey, all these other products, they get the job done, but you don't really want them out in your space. Yeah. And he wanted to create something more like furniture that you would actually enjoy having uh, on your nightstand or on your desk. And ours is way more substantial than everybody else's, and it's complete. It's way bigger. Um, what about the electronics? How did you figure that out in such a short time? That part, um, we we were lucky enough to hire a contract engineer who um, had just gotten laid off at one of my friend's companies. And my friend had uh, emailed me asking if I had any work for him because mm. he was trying to find his former employees' jobs. And the timing was perfect. So we hired uh, this guy, Mike Irwin, for about uh, two to three months. And during that time, he he worked on that charge pad and figured out not just the electronics, but how to um, get everything to fit together. The electronics themselves are not that complicated. But have you ever done anything electronic before? Anything that was powered? Um, you know, I don't think so. I didn't even realize it until you just asked me that question. I don't think we've ever done it. Everything else that you've ever made was not a powered product. Right, because even our iPhone docks, we just have the yeah. lightning plug. It's just like a pass-through yeah, cord. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, you're right. I think that's the first one. <laughs> I didn't even realize that. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that seems like one of the biggest challenges of making this thing for someone or a company that's been operating for that long that's never done anything like it. But Because you, you must have had to source parts that you've never had to source before. Yeah, we had to source electronic components from China, which was new to us and very challenging. For example, a lot of the vendors don't do email. Right. They prefer they're all WhatsApp. Exactly. They're all yeah. They prefer WhatsApp. And I was like, what (laughs) we have to like wait for this guy to wake up in the morning to like Right. It is is crazy. But one thing about our company is we're kind of run and gone and we just don't think too much. Um, we're built. <laughs> it's funny because when you look at the end result, it doesn't seem like that, but that's that's a good thing. I mean, we're built to fail. That's why we feel a lot of freedom. Mm-hmm. And my, my team doesn't feel this fear of failing. Failing. Our company's built around this idea that we're going to be an aggressive product company. We're going to try stuff and it's not all going to work out. So, for example, we had a another product that was a total flop, our um, tough case. So this year we decided to finally design like a really durable iPhone case because mm-hmm. all our customers are asking for it. And we invested a lot of money and time. It didn't work out. My team, they felt bad about it for maybe half a day and then we quickly move on. How did, how did you decide that it, it wasn't working? Uh, the sales. Okay, so, ultimately, so you launched it and then the sales didn't exactly. pick up? Exactly, they were very flat. And a product like that requires high volume to justify the tooling. So fortunately, we we planned for that scenario. So we started seeing what the reaction would be to the product before we invested in tooling. So everything is kind of designed around, hey, can we try things? Mm-hmm. And if it hits, let's we can figure out a way to deliver it, high quality and on time. If it doesn't, we can quickly move on. That's interesting. I mean, the, the, my question to, to to that is like, how do you know? Is it because you have enough of a customer base now that you can sort of test the success of this idea that that you feel confident in that decision, or is it that the audience for that product doesn't know about GroveMade yet? How how do you make the the distinction between those two things? Well, we can usually tell right away yeah. just with our 
newsletter list. We've done enough product launches that it's pretty obvious when we've struck out on a consumer and product fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get a lot of flack for this too, but we have no problem canceling products or killing them off. You know, yeah. like I just told you the story about 85%, we just hacked it off one day. Yeah. Um, I don't know why. That's just how we're built. We just quickly move on. How do you, but how do you reconcile the fact that it sounds like a lot of people were asking you for this like tougher case, but then the, the demand didn't come through? Well, <laughs> um, that's an interesting topic in general. And how do you listen to your customers? And it's, it's a tough one. Uh, we try to f- figure out what they need, and it's not always what they say, right? So this might be a classic example where they're always saying they wanted a durable case, but the truth is they want our case to be more durable. Hmm. And the design-oriented customers we have aren't willing to sacrifice design for durability. You're saying that this, this I haven't seen the design for this tougher case, but it was too bulky or something like that. Yeah, of course it was bulkier. It had a, a rubber elastomer mm-hmm. bumper on it with a big stainless, um, I mean, aluminum chamfer on the inside. Uh, we, th- we felt it was pretty attractive for the genre, but it still got bulk and it still has these trade-offs. And we were trying to create the, the most well-designed iPhone case in that genre of like ultra rugged because the other ones look like tanks, right? Yeah, yeah, they're like, uh, they're like military <laughs> ruggedized. Like, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, I know what you're saying. Like you're going on the SWAT team or something. Right. It's funny now in hindsight, but one of the reasons we felt there was an opportunity is there, there was a really well designed one that we liked, mm-hmm. a brand called uh, Lunatic with a K. Yeah. And they've been around for a long time. Yeah. 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 But they actually went bankrupt. Interesting. <laughs> Uh, or sold or something. They disappeared. They're gone. So we were like, oh, there's nobody in that market anymore. There's a hole for us. So we went in thinking there'd be a market and there wasn't. So now the joke is, well, we thought the opportunity was there because a company went bankrupt, but the reverse is they, true. They went yeah. bankrupt, you know? So, yeah. So maybe uh, it's just not meant to be. The uh, paradox of the things that people want in a product don't actually translate to people pulling the trigger. Are there other things that surprised you like that in terms of products where maybe the opposite is interesting to to explore mm-hmm. scenarios where no no one was asking for this, but you you made it and as a complete experiment and it 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 actually was successful. Yeah, we've had a bunch of those this year where I was thinking, oh, this I like this product, but I was kind of nervous about how the customers react. Specifically, let's see this year the the desk pad, the desk shelf system. That we launched the minimalist knife, this charge pad have all been much more successful than than I had hoped, than I had expected. And those were things that people were were not asking you for. No, um, the wireless charging pad has done much better than I had expected uh, because we were kind of feeling a little down on the technology stuff. It's one of those things with customers, even with eight years of experience, I still don't know. We're just guessing, uh-huh. so. We've designed our business so we can, we can get a lot of swings at bat. You know, it's like baseball. You're not going to hit them all, but can you uh, get a lot of swings in there? A lot of good swings, and hopefully it works out in the end. So, where does the like seed of a brand new idea come from? Is it who who is coming up with these ideas? It sounds like you have a lot of them. Are there other people on the team that come up with? Oh, I have this idea for a product. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's not something that comes from customer demand, how do you judge whether that's an idea that you want to pursue or start prototyping? Mm -hmm. Well, there's always a lot of ideas kicking around on various lists. Yeah, (laughs) 
we don't really have a concrete process on who and how we decide what to do next. It's pretty organic. The other day, we brought in our marketing guy, Nick, for the first time into the discussions. So him and myself and Sean Kelly, our lead designer, we were discussing, hey, what should we do next? Um, last year, we started actually listening to our customers a lot better. We started reaching out, getting to know them, seeing their workspaces, seeing how they work, and really thinking about their needs and having that guide what we do. Whereas in the past, we were just making things for ourselves, which is nice and simple, and there's some kind of purity to that. But I feel like it's not coincidental that last year was much more successful than in years past, and that was the year that we actually started hanging out with our customers and seeing if we can help them out a little bit. When you say hanging out, what do you mean by that? Well, um, we did a pretty intensive program to get to know them. You know, We did our usual surveys and stuff like that that everybody does. And then we actually did some um, higher level research by uh, interviewing 30 of them by a video interview. And then I actually traveled and visited some customers in person to see how are they using our product? Who are they? What are their values? And then uh, specifically on the desk shelf system, we went, Sean and I probably looked at 600 people's desks. Mm -hmm. So we walked around, went to various companies and looked at how people were working. Rather than ask them, what do you want us to make? We just observed. And we asked them questions about friction points they had. And then we came up with an interpretation of what they might need, but they just don't know it yet. And that I mean that whole project that's a that's a big endeavor. It didn't seem too large for us at the time. Uh, we just kind of did it, and we're so small that it's not very hard for things to happen. Yeah, there's no meetings or bureaucracy. Kind of a side tangent, which I think you might find interesting, is we have a thing called the three person rule, where what we is can that? have meetings with more than three people. That's cool. That's interesting. (laughs) And it's a really simplified way to just show like, hey, we're here to get things done. And we believe that smaller groups of people can collaborate and move things along faster. And maybe that fourth, fifth, sixth person might have made the project 5% better. But But like 50% slower. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They could have been working on something else. So it's one of the, the weird things we do that's, I think is kind of key to how productive we're able to be. I forget how this goes. I think Jeff Bezos has like a two pizza rule. <laughs> I think that's he's like maximum number of people in the meeting is fed by two pizzas or something like that or one pizza. I forget how many pizzas it is. I mean, it's not perfect. Sometimes yeah. more people need to be involved, so you'll form like a tripod of three people and then yeah. one of those people meets with another two people. Uh-huh. Like it's kind of ridiculous. But overall, I, I love it. It makes but work fun. You also, but you do have like uh, all hands yes. once in a while, right? Yes. Or yes, so that's different. Um, we distinguish between meetings where you're trying to do something together and make right. a decision or create something uh, versus uh, information. Yeah. So we actually meet every day at eight o'clock sharp. Our team get, gathers in a circle, and we can actually count down the seconds to eight o'clock zero 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 zero. And uh, one person from the team, it's always different, leads the. The huddle, wow. and they'll they'll start the meeting with a, a welcome to Grove Maid, and everybody claps, thunderous applause, and then we go through. Um, does anybody have any intentions for the day? And anybody who wants to speak just speaks up. Or if, does anyone have anything the whole team needs to know? People speak up, 
and then bam, we're off to work. It takes about three minutes. And then we do the same thing at the end of the day. So those are uh, informational. You don't have 15 people trying to accomplish something together. Mm. It's, hey, let's get on the same page so we can feel together. And boom, off to work. Three minutes, that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. And once a week, we meet, um, I call it Monday Circle. Uh, once, a, once a week, I gather the whole team and we do some kind of something related to building the team. So we take 15 minutes out of each week to, I just make it up every week. But maybe one week, it's we just go around the circle and everybody talks about what they did that weekend. Uh, one week, we might just go for a walk together. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. So I guess it's kind of a meeting, but not really. You know, um, we try to stay away from multiple people trying to make decisions simultaneously. Yeah. One, yeah, this reminds me of something we started to do at Lumi probably four or five months ago. We we started doing this thing we call Feature Friday, which uh-huh. is that we have um, the the team has grown quite a bit. I think we're like twenty five people uh, right now. And one thing that started to happen a few months ago is we were like. I don't know what everyone's working on right yeah. now. Like, there's enough people that it's hard. It's hard to now keep track of what everyone's working on. So every week we have one person kind of go really deep on on whatever they've been working uh, on lately. Cool. And you know, it's like usually thirty to forty five minutes long, and they show off the tools that they use, like their process, and then a project that they've been working on. And the cool thing is we have a very diverse diverse in many ways but diverse in terms of like type of work that someone is doing mm-hmm. so every week it's like radically different you know mm-hmm. one week we Caitlin who who helps uh, on the editorial side arrange these podcasts and all this kind of uh-huh. stuff helped um elucidate to the rest of the team how we go from like finding people for the show to editing the show to posting it and that's radically different than someone who's like programming all day uh-huh. trying to build the website from someone who's actually like on the manufacturing and delivery side like everything's so unique um that it's really fun to kind of get together and talk about that and like allow people to go deep on the thing that they're working on right now Man, i really like that because there's so many elements that make a company hum yeah and they're all super important and i bet i bet it builds an appreciation amongst everybody of what Everyone well, else is bringing to the team. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. We hope that everyone's like working on something that they're passionate about and having fun doing it. But we're bumping into each other in the office. But that's kind of, and you can have kind of like a high level conversation about that. But it's hard to really understand what is it that they're actually thinking about all day. Mm. Uh, so that all of those types of little things definitely inform the culture of a company over time. How long ago did you guys start with the these huddles and stuff? It sounds like a cool idea. <laughs> yeah, it's been I think a couple of years. Yeah. It's probably one of the better things we've done. Yeah. Um it brings the team together because we have so many different types of work like you guys. The um the classic difference is like the blue collar and white collar. Yeah. So half the team is like actually making stuff and the other half is design or marketing or customer service or management finance. So I believe the kind of the key to our team is that we're all together yeah. and everybody's respected. And that's also the reason why we can make these products is because we're doing everything that we're so vertically integrated and manufacturing has to start at the same time because 
people work as a team and office doesn't. So for a while we were all coming in at different times and it just didn't feel right to me. It just felt like we have us and them and we try as hard as possible to break that down. In the holidays, it becomes more literal where um, when we get really busy, all of us on the office side will actually be in manufacturing. So this Christmas, I was in the production line for a month. Sean, our lead designer, has been in the production line for two months. Our head of operations, production line, marketing guy, about 10 hours a week in the production line, like everybody. It's really fun, actually. We call it all hands. Yeah. And there's something about doing like hard work, manual work together that kind of bonds a team. Yeah. Yeah. On the last episode, we talked, uh, or actually the one prior to the last episode, Emily from Bagu talked about her team cooking activities. I want to bring that oh, to yeah. me. I, I always, I've always had a lot of fun like cooking as a group, and that's uh-huh. that's something I'd like to do. Yeah, I remember that episode. That was that was really great. Um, super impressed with how she took like a, oh, an idea and just like ran with it. You know, classic example of how it's. In my opinion, business, it's not about the idea. Everybody's got ideas. But certain people can take those strokes of inspiration and some luck into something bigger. You know, you were mentioning before we started recording that people are always asking you about marketing advice. Mm-hmm. And like, well, you said you don't do it, but I think that that's not exactly true. No, not exactly. Well, everybody wants kind of that silver bullet. Right. And they're always disappointed when I tell them, we just got lucky. We got on a blog post on Gizmodo and suddenly we had a business eight eight years ago. I think there's some luck to it, but after that, it takes a lot of work to build the brand and all that stuff. But we've also really struggled with it recently. You know, um, I think I get a lot of those questions because the digital sphere, the internet has gotten mature. It's not this wild west situation where you can just jump in and find some void. And just like anything in economics, it's supply and demand or filling. And prices are determined on actual market forces. And you can't just get free eyeballs in your product anymore. And we've tried multiple times to kind of brute force our way to more um, eyeballs on our brand, top Mm. funnel, as they say. And it's never really worked. Yeah, Um, Traditional advertising, whether it's now it's more like digital advertising through ads. Facebook, Google. We've tried so many times Mm. through agencies or doing it ourselves, and it never seems to work. And what always kind of moves the needle for us is actually just doing good work to begin with. This year and last year a little bit, we started focusing more on like, hey, what can we do with the traffic we bring in? You know, we're fortunate enough that people are interested in what we do. And it's very expensive to find new people to a level that's not really sustainable for a company like ours. So what can we do with these people? Let's nurture them. Let's increase our average order, our value, our lifetime value. Let's create people interested in our brand into customers, people that are customers into loyal fans, and just believe that if we do that, everything will be fine. And so far, it has been. So I think there's kind of like this flywheel of momentum that can happen yeah. with, with businesses. And once turning in the right direction with a brand like ours, we don't have to brute force our way. And like what were, for marketing, but what were do you have specific adjustments that you made that helped increase like the average order value? Uh, mostly, it's having more products. Yeah. So instead of spending time energy on top funnel marketing, we put that budget into R and D, which is 
our core competency or product company, and we're able to expand our lineup. You know, was it a matter of just the diversity of the products, or the diversity of the price points, or the anything like that? The diversity of products is the main one. Yeah. So before we, the easiest way to understand it is we used to have just iPhone cases, right? Right. So if you came and you loved our brand, you buy an iPhone case, and you don't really need another one. Right. Now, if you love our brand and come to our site, maybe you come for the iPhone case initially, and they're like, "Oh, they make earrings and wallets." Yeah. And then a couple of years later, you become a freelancer and you have a home office, and you you remember us and you get our desk accessories. And you said you weren't really a lifestyle company, but I feel like to some extent you are. Maybe maybe like a values company. Yeah. You know. Um, I might be simplifying a little bit. When I think of lifestyle company, I think of models. Uh-huh. That's what I think of. What do you mean by models? Like the photo shoots of oh, the models. Okay, okay. And, right. and, you're, and you're aspiring to be like these people. And we intentionally don't have yeah. that kind people, of imagery. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Because we want people to project themselves onto mm-hmm. it. So if you notice our photography, most of our product photography is kind of like an abstraction. It's an unrealistically nice and organized space <laughs> that you might want to feel that. Yeah. Not like, I wish I was like this sure. cool person that has tattoos or something. Okay, I see what you're saying. But the products that you make fit into someone's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone might look at this diverse array of, of products and think, I want to live in a world where I'm surrounded by Grove made stuff. Mm-hmm. Are there ideas out there that you really want to explore? Are there things that you haven't delved into yet? Yeah, so I love furniture. That was my yeah. first love. And it's really hard to do and make, yeah. make a living at it. I really struggled with it. But someday I'd like for Grovemate to get come all the way back around full circle to the furniture world and maybe even bigger to spaces. I would love to help you on that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have so many furniture ideas, but no outlet for that. I don't, I don't feel like it's a... Man... That that stuff is really fun. I love furniture because it impacts the way you feel about yeah. your life, right? Um, and accessories do too, to to a certain extent, because you're handling it all the time. I also like the timelessness. Hmm. You know, uh, we're not entirely happy with the fact that we make some products that don't last because sure. of, they're tied to a technology. And slowly, we're moving towards, hey, let's create something that can last forever, like exactly. something that, yeah. Yeah, because the materials can and the construction can. So I was just recently in Japan and I went to. I love Muji as a company, as uh-huh. a brand that's fascinating to me. And it was amazing being there. How much in Japan, at least, it's like expanded into a lot of different areas. When I when I first learned about Muji, like fifteen years ago, what I knew of them was like stationary and some of these like work products. Mm-hmm. And they had done some furniture as well. And I was just starting to see them get into uh, clothing, mm-hmm. which maybe they had been doing for a long time, but I didn't think of them as that kind of company. But going to Japan and seeing it there, it's like they've expanded like crazy into food. Like there's all kinds of foods that are Muji branded. Uh-huh. There's uh, there's like a cafe there. They're selling plants. They've got a whole bookstore. They're doing interior design services. Like it's it is like a lifestyle brand in every possible way. They it's like they've merged IKEA with <laughs> Uniqlo with 
everything. And they do uh, prefab structures too. Yes, which, they have that little house that you yeah. can buy. It's like they you can literally live completely a Muji lifestyle. And I think that's kind of my dream. Really? Someday we just do it all. That we have this mock uh, yeah. tiny house yeah. and the kitchen cabinets are by us, the lighting's by us, the tables, the furniture, the accessories, like everything. That is kind of a, a designer's <laughs> dream. Yeah. It is really fun to, to explore every single angle of life. It's going to be tough. We've, we've tried to get into certain angles. Like we, we made a tabletop collection yeah. a couple of years ago that I really liked personally. And it was a complete flop with our customers. Tabletop by, and what do you mean by that? So we made like uh, placemats, mm-hmm. plates, bowls, mm. uh, a carafe thing, cups, uh, salt and pepper shaker. Um, and that coasters. didn't work? That, no. Yeah. Uh, was it just expectations? Do you think people were like in this mode where they thought of you as being part of their electronics and work place right. I life? think it may have been a too big of a leap. Yeah. Um, we didn't have a customer base that was design focused around the home yet. It was right. we were too closely tied to technology at the time. That could have been it. We may have been just too early. Someday I want to bring it back with the lessons we've learned mm. and maybe modify the collection a little bit. We had a little bit of success with the entryway collection, uh, which is about a series of products from mm. right when you walk into a home. Like mm. Where do you put your coat? Where do you put your keys? Uh, we made this catch-all thing that we still have in our lineup we had coat hooks a mirror and this wall planter and the wall planter was actually one of my favorite products we've ever made i have four of them in my place <laughs> yeah and didn't sell you know um maybe it's a funny thing <laughs> it's about nudging your customers like closer very <laughs> exactly. gradually exactly to that lifestyle thing yeah and i think back then we believe like we could brute force it you know even right. though we didn't have those customers we thought like if we make a good enough product, it'll just happen. And it didn't happen. But I don't know, that that naivety, I think it's okay to keep that in our brand. It yeah. just keeps us, keeps us fresh. Well, Ken, if people want to find out about GrovaMade, they go to GrovaMade.com. And right. anything else you want to tell people to take a look at? Maybe a passing thought is on our homepage, if you scroll down, you can see our whole team. Right. And uh, that's a very intentional move. That it's not like tucked away somewhere. It's on the homepage because uh, I think in any business it starts with the people. So I hope you get to know our team. There's like kind of goofy quotes, and you, there's a picture of me getting hit in the face with snowballs. <laughs> that, that alone might be worth it. So I hope you guys come check it out. Yeah, if you buy something, it's going to be made by one of those people or a few of those people. So that's kind of yeah. a special thing. To, you get to see who made the stuff that you bought. And possibly even me, if it's during the holidays, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Cool, well, thank you so much, Ken. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.